Do I need, oh, there we go, there we go. So we're continuing our journey through Mark. And I want to start this morning by thinking about one of the things that non-Christians often say about Jesus. And it's that they can accept him as a great teacher, even if they can't take the step of then saying, yes, he is Lord, he is Savior, he is God himself. And Jesus was a great teacher. And there were a few reasons for that. One of them, he understood the power of a simple, brief presentation some time before TED Talks worked it out. He understood the pithy soundbite some time before Blair ever said, education, education, education. And because Jesus knew the maxim that we remember a little of what we read. We remember some of what we see or hear, more of what we see and hear, and we remember pretty much everything of what we experience, what we participate in. So the point is, Jesus was a great, and we have learned, frequently surprising teacher, because he used story. He used everyday examples to illustrate complicated ideas. He took assumptions and he picked them apart. And on his last evening with his closest friends, he involved them in an act that explained, that demonstrated, and that created a transformed world. And the best bit is that we get to participate in it too, and we will later on. And we call it the Lord's Supper. And this, I hope, will be a sermon of feasts for the senses and the soul. We are covering Passover, the Last Supper, and the Lord's Supper. So let's hear from the Word of God now. We're in Mark 14, which should come up there again. And we're starting in verse 10. Didn't bring my Bible out, did I? Mark 14. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Let's pray.
thank you, God, for your word, for your guidance. Thank you that you teach us in so many different ways to enable us to understand what you need us to know, what you want us to understand and believe. So we pray, open our eyes and our hearts now to what you have to say in your name. Amen. Now, there has been a long-held assumption that what Mark, and indeed Luke, and Matthew were writing about in the Last Supper uh, was the Passover meal, the Seder. And we can see there are some overlaps in the way that Jewish families and communities still celebrate that important feast with what Jesus did and what we still do in our Lord's Supper. The Passover feast is held to remember the exodus from Egypt, the escape from slavery. And the Israelites were instructed by God, via Moses, to slaughter a lamb, to smear its blood on the doorframe of their homes as a sign to the angel of death that he should pass over those homes. And then they needed to eat, packed and ready, standing up, and they were to eat unleavened bread because there was no time and the roasted lamb and bitter herbs. And then they made their escape towards the promised land with God as their guide and their redeemer, their rescuer. And then during their time in the desert, part of the many laws and instructions that God gave to Moses for his people were about how to keep this memory alive. And so the Passover feast was born. And perhaps not surprisingly, elements were added over the generations. So now, and this wasn't the case on the first Passover, now there are prescribed questions for the youngest at the table to ask the head of the household. Questions about why do we do this? What does this mean? What's this for? And they all know what the answers are, but it's that repeated memory building exercise. So the various elements have remained the same. The lamb, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and latterly, wine was also added. And each element at this Seder, the Passover meal, has significance. For instance, the bitter herbs, and dip your bread in the bitter herbs, are to remind the eaters of the bitter life they led as slaves in Egypt. And there are other ritualistic elements, for instance, lighting a candle. And I didn't mean to do this beforehand, so let's do that now. And of course, there are key words to be spoken, like these. This is the poor bread that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. All who are hungry, let them come and eat. All who are needy, let them come and partake of the Passover sacrifice. This year, we are here. Next year, let us be in Israel. This year we are slaves. Next year, let us be free people. And this annual reenactment meant that the Passover could be as real for a Jewish family in York in the 10th century 
as for one in 20th century Brooklyn, as it was for a family in first century Palestine. It lent then, it continues to signify some really important things. Remembrance, new life, community, celebration, sacrifice, and redemption, being set free. And you can see why the first Christians who were, after all, firstly Jews, saw parallels with that celebration and the one that Jesus instigated at the Last Supper. There are, for instance, the important elements of bread and wine. And those elements, these elements, are not just foodstuffs. They represent, they remind, they embody something else. And those parallels cannot be denied. What we can seriously wonder about, though, is whether the meal that Jesus and his friends shared was actually a Seder, a Passover meal. I'm not going to pretend that I have a definitive answer. I don't. If you want to go away and Google it and look for yourself, please, please do. There are a number of learned articles online. There are also a number of slightly flaky ones. So, you know, weigh them up, pray about that. Come and have a chat if you want to. I wouldn't raise it if I didn't think there was an important point to be made out of asking the question, was it actually a Passover meal? Because Mark says that it was the night of the first day. And the first day was when the lamb was slaughtered, but it was not the night when they celebrated the Passover meal. And we could genuinely ask the question, if it was that night, that night was Passover, would the Pharisees have gone out of their way to involve themselves in an act that was so dangerous, so ritually unclean, so political as an arrest and an interrogation? So there, there are some real reasons to question whether it was a Passover meal. But here's why I think it's significant and why we should take it on board. This is why I like the idea that the Last Supper was not a Passover. Because if it wasn't Passover, then it was dinner. It was Jesus and his friends eating together, as they did pretty much every day for those three years that they were together. It was a gathering round the table of friends, of colleagues. It was a time of sustenance and chatter and catching up. Now, close your eyes just briefly and imagine the Last Supper. I think there's quite a high chance that you're imagining something like Leonardo, for the benefit of the audio, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. So what we have here are 13 men sitting down one side of a table. Yeah. <clears throat> well, what we know from the biblical text is that they weren't sitting at all. They were reclining as free men did. It was a way of saying, we are free, we are free men, we are not slaves. So we know that they were reclining. 
I tell you what else. I'm pretty sure they weren't all sitting down one side of a table. I tell you what else. If Passover, and we know Passover was coming up, it wouldn't have been just Jesus and his disciples. There would have been wives, children, possibly parents. We know that Jesus' mother was at the foot of the cross. Did she sprint from Nazareth? I don't think so. They were all together. The next picture I prefer, it's called Jesus Selfie. I really tried hard to find out who was responsible for it. I can't, but it's rather cool, isn't it? But even Jesus Selfie doesn't, I don't think, give us the idea of the bustle, the laughter, the joy, the companionship and the fellowship that was around this table. This, what we do together, shouldn't be an annual celebration, an annual thing. It's more frequent than that. There is a joy to it, a regularity to it. Because if what Jesus did was not the Passover, then what we do should not be like the Passover. It's not just a memorial and it's not an annual event it should be life-giving life-affirming and about community as much as the individual what else is annual birthdays are annual and they are lovely and they are special but that's all about it's all about me should be all about me on my birthday but this this is never just about me never just about you this is about us and jesus here in this room and it comes to mean that the lord's supper is about more than looking back it is and that's important but it's about more it's about looking around at each other it's about looking out into the outside world and it's about looking forward. And we're going to explore that more in our next section. But we're going to take a moment now to digest some of this and to ponder again the King of Kings, King yesterday, today, and forevermore. Please stand if you're able. So we're going to spend some time now looking at the Last Supper and how it leads us into the Lord's Supper and then it will lead us into the Lord's Supper. Our celebration of Eucharist communion, there are a number of terms and I definitely don't want to get bogged down into the slightly different emphases that come with those words. Let's not get bogged down in that. Let's enjoy the word of God again. In, back in Mark 14, this time verses 22 to 26. So while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them and they all drank from it. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what do we say at the beginning? That as humans, we tend to learn and understand best through experience. And Tom Wright described what we've just heard, the Last Supper, as an example not of theological information, but of theological experience. Don't get me wrong, Jesus is imparting some really important information. He's still trying to prepare the disciples for what is to come. I will be betrayed, my blood will be poured out, and there will be a new covenant sealed in that blood. Well, that's pretty huge, because his Jewish disciples live by the covenant, the agreement, the treaty, the beirit, if you want the uh, Hebrew word, between God and his people. And they know that living by the covenant that God made with Moses and the Israelites, living by that covenant brings blessings. And ignoring that covenant brings curses. Have a quick read of Deuteronomy 30. And they know what those curses look like. Exile. Famine. War. Disaster. Check out anywhere in Lamentations, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Psalm 42 now here in the upper room jesus is saying there is a new covenant to be had a new agreement based on a different relationship with god based on access to god down a path that has been cleared by jesus himself sealed not with the blood of a sacrificed animal but with the blood of jesus the son of God. And how much more important is something sealed with that blood than with something sealed with the blood of even the most spotless and perfect lambs? And in this information, Jesus also tells them that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and he will join them there and drink with them again. And Jesus could have left it there. Another very important mini lecture on who God is, how the kingdom of God is here now, drawing near, not distant. But he didn't leave it there. Jesus involved those present in an acting out of what he meant. He took bread. He gave thanks for the bread to God he broke the bread and they all ate they shared in what jesus identified as his body not incidentally broken christ's body was not broken even on the cross and the word broken doesn't appear in direct translations of the text but he is given the body is given freely and as a sacrifice 
and he gave them wine, identified as being like his blood. And they shared in his blood. And for Jews, for the Jewish people, blood is a living thing's life force. He was sharing his very being with them. So, when we approach this table, we are certainly remembering all of that. We think back to Jesus' last meal with his friends and we reflect on his body freely given for us, his blood freely shed for us. But there is more. We are looking ahead, as Jesus does, to that new heaven and that new earth when he will join us. We are, in fact, this is tricky, reenacting something before it happens. It's a future echo, a glimpse of something so amazing, so wonderful, so powerful, so lovely, that we have to practice it. We have to get it right. We have to be ready for when we actually get to drink the wine with Jesus. Jesus was, this probably doesn't need saying, Jesus was a far better teacher than I ever was. I learned, I was taught, that there were many different ways to learn. There were 1.3 and then I think there were seven, could be any number, different types of intelligences, different ways of learning. And I was supposed to use all of them in any given 40 minute lesson so that my students would get the most out of that lesson. Well, I frequently didn't. It's really hard. But Jesus, better than me, as I say, Jesus knew that different people learn in different ways. That experiencing is more important than being told. And he made this multi-dimensional looking forward looking backwards, looking to the here and the now, looking up to God, looking around at the others around the table and out to those yet to be invited. And he made it multi-sensory. Taste, touch, sight, sound, smell, all are vital in this experience. Some actions are more powerful and more meaningful than just being that action. Let me explain. If, for instance, I were to hug one of you, my dear friends, sideways, obviously we're good Christians, sideways hug. If I were to do that, it would be a great way of demonstrating, it would be a symbol of my love for you. But it would also be a way of experiencing that love, feeling something of that love. But it would also be a chance to create that love, to create a bond. So it is with the bread 
and the wine. Yes, they are symbols of Jesus, his love and his sacrifice. They are signs of the new agreement between us and God, but they also bring about that new agreement. They make the kingdom of heaven real for us in this moment, right now. So in the act of participa <clears throat> participating in the Lord's Supper in just a moment, we are prophetically announcing the kingdom of heaven arriving. We are calling it into being. Now I can talk, you may be listening, but we already know that the understanding comes through the experience. So Jesus calls you now to this table, to this experience of Jesus, the experience of reenacting that which has happened and that which is to come. Jesus calls us all now to come closer, to lean into this experience, to allow the mystery to envelop you and also to hold tight the very real, very physical things that he has given us to help us understand the mystery. And so, because we are all invited, because we are all welcome here to share in this meal, we offer our praise to the one who invited us. We look up. Creator God, we worship and we praise you for all that you have made, all that you have done and all your promises that you have kept. Thank you for the sun and the moon and the stars. Thank you for this place of safety and welcome. Thank you for rushing to meet us with outstretched arms. We look to you, God, because you are where our help comes from. We look to you because in a world of change and pain and confusion, you are constant. You offer balm, you offer order. You, loving God, offer hope. Accept this, our worship, we pray. Amen. And because we are invited, and know that we are not on our own worthy of such an invitation, we look back. Forgiving God, guide us, we pray, as we reflect on the past, bring to mind those things that we have done or not done, said or not said, that have caused pain or suffering to you or to others. We ask for your forgiveness for those things. We pray that you will take the burden of sin and shame and set our feet on a different path, looking to you for guidance, not to this broken world. We hold up the evils of the world, the war, the famine, the abuses of power on small and grand scales. We may not be directly responsible, but we pray teach us where we can make a difference. We are sorry for those things that are done in our name by those we have elected, for the times that we have walked by or not got involved in someone else's problem. 
We pray for guidance in how to be rightly involved in your whole world, God. And we thank you, we thank you for the forgiveness that you offer, for the restoration bought for us, for the redemption Jesus gave. It means we can say, we are forgiven. We are your children. In your name, amen. Because we are all welcome here, because we are all here for the same reason, because we are all going to share in one loaf of bread, we look around. Are you doubtful? Be made strong in faith. Are you hurting? Be made whole in faith. Are you weary? Be made alive in faith. Are you fearful? Be made courageous in faith. Are you ready? Come near in faith. Jesus offered peace to those who approached him, who loved him. It was a peace which passes all understanding, peace which endures, peace which offers strength and wholeness of life. And the peace he gave was not limited to one time or place. It was passed to us. And we are to nurture that flickering flame of peace that we hold in us and release it to those around us. So, and I know some of you won't like this, we are going to offer one another a sign of peace. And I know that for some of us, it is just plain uncomfortable to share the physical handshake or the hug, and that is fine. The words, peace be with you, are perfectly adequate. But for those of us for whom hugging and handshaking is life-giving, ask, ask, are you a hugger? as you offer your sign of peace. You're not gonna get round everybody in the room, we haven't got time, but turn to the people around you. Peace be with you. Let us offer one another a sign of peace. Finally, <clears throat> we need to consider what all of this means for us now. So for the last time, hear the words that God gave us through his servant Mark. Back in Mark 14, uh, 17 to 21, and then 26 to 30. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 
Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Now we can be surprised at how effective a teacher Jesus was. We can be, and I hope we are, excited at the depth and the scale of the promise and the power on offer in this simple act. But I wonder if the real excitement, wonder and surprise is found in these verses. Because when Jesus said, woe to that man who betrays the son of man, it would be better for him if he had not been born, we could be forgiven. I, I used to read it like this, um, a hint of Guy Ritchie or Michael Caine, depending on your vintage, a kind of, you'd be better off dead, mate. But given everything else that we know about Jesus, that's not what he was saying. What he was showing was a sign of his grief for a fallen friend, for someone he loved, having chosen the lesser way, for having lost sight of what Jesus offered, what he gave so freely. So even in the moment Jesus knew he was to be betrayed, <clears throat> knew who that betrayal was and was grieved about it, he still offered, <coughs> sorry, he still offered his body, his blood, his sacrifice for everyone in the room. So the Last Supper, and by extension then the Lord's Supper, was for Judas as much as it was for the other 11, and whoever else may have been there. So the Last Supper was for the weak and the greedy, the liar. And poor Peter, poor Peter, so sure of his faith, so determined to say the right thing. The Last Supper was for him, the delusional, the sure, the too sure of themselves. And the other disciples, so keen to distance themselves from someone else's weakness, the Last Supper was for the defensive and the selfish. And what else do we know about the disciples from all that we've learned about Mark so far? Well, they rarely understood exactly what Jesus meant. They often made mistakes. They lacked faith. Sometimes they even lacked compassion. They didn't understand, even when Jesus went off on his own to pray. So perhaps that suggests that their quiet time was not overly developed. So the Last Supper was for the confused, the weak in faith, the foolish. The Last Supper was even for those who don't quite manage a daily Bible reading. So the Last Supper and this, the Lord's Supper, it is for all of us in all of our weaknesses, in all of our flaws. None of this is forced on us. It is given and it is for us to take. It is offered 
with love and with power, with grace and with truth, with might and with forgiveness. It's not the sign that we have achieved peak Christian, that we have the gold medal in discipleship, that we are as good as we're ever going to get. I hope not. It's a sign that we want to spend the time with Jesus, that we value him as teacher, as friend, as redeemer, that he is welcome at this and every meal, in our everyday lives. It's the outward sign that we are inwardly changing and we want more. That's a lot to process. It's a lot to take in. So we're going to spend some time in prayer now, processing and digesting that.